Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Elizabeth E.P. Press sits down with attorney Ian Silverman to discuss the lawsuit Tiffany Thomas Silverman filed against Mayor Mantello's administration for refusal to recognize her appointment by former Mayor Madden to the Zoning Board of Appeals in Troy. Then, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry continues his interview with Sean Collins, Troy Area Labor Council President and Labor Organizer for the Service Employees International Union. Later on, Sina Basilahiki chats with Deborah Brown, President of the Albany NAACP, and Beverly Ivey, uh, Chair of the Civic Engagement for the Albany NAACP, about an event happening at the Albany Institute of Art and History on February 25th. After that, Bria Barthel and Albany area sewist Lynn D. Maria uh, talk about how learning the techniques of sewing helps individuals support environmental sustainability by reducing landfill, uh, preserving cherished items, and more. Finally, Alicia Washington speaks with Cheryl Marion, co-founder of Flutters of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit organization that supports and advocates for individuals combating and recovering from an eating disorder to better understand the struggle, the road ahead for individuals facing eating disorders, and the stress it places on the family. But first, here are the headlines. The state appeals court rules in a three-to-one decision that the New York City law that would allow non-citizens to vote in local elections does not comply with the state's municipal home rule law. The court said such a measure needed to be approved by a referendum of voters, not by decisions of the city council. Allowing local residents who are not citizens to vote in local elections is common in many of the world's democracies. Craig Ross Jr. pled guilty Wednesday to kidnapping a nine-year-old girl from Moreau State Park last summer and will serve 47 years to life in prison. Defense attorney Lee Kindlin, Colony Assembly person Phil Steck, and former Albany County District Attorney Paul Klein are all vying to challenge incumbent David Soros in a Democratic primary Party primary for Albany County District Attorney. Soros, who is seeking a sixth term, has recently come under fire for awarding himself an illegal pay raise. On Thursday, the Albany County Democratic Committee voted to not endorse any of the candidates, saying all four were highly qualified and worthy of endorsement. The city of Troy is back to square one in its 10-year-long effort to redevelop the site of former City Hall in downtown Troy near Monument Square. The proposal by... Hoboken Brownstone Company for a $64 million mixed-use development was recently dropped. The Gazette reports that Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy signed a community benefits agreement with the Mohawk Harbor Arena developers last Thursday, unbeknownst to the city council, who debated the agreement that same night without the knowledge that the mayor had already reached a deal. Troy City Mayor Carmela Mantello delivered her first State of the City address Wednesday night. Public safety was a key issue, with the mayor uh, outlining a new task force to target high crime areas in the city. She pledged to have all lead water lines in the city replaced in four years. She called on Governor Hochul to reject all plans to close the Burdett Birth Center. And that's it for headlines. 
For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or give us a call at 518-272-2390. Tiffany Thomas Silverman is suing Mayor Mantello's administration for refusal to recognize her appointment by former Mayor Madden to the Zoning Board of Appeals in Troy. She is being represented by her husband, Ian Silverman, who joined Elizabeth E.P. Press to talk about the lawsuit. Former Democratic Mayor Patrick Madden appointed Tiffany Thomas Silverman to the Zoning Board of Appeals in December to replace Katie Spain McLaren, who is now on the Troy City Council. But Republican Mayor Carmela Montello's administration refused to recognize this appointment. Today, we are joined by Ian Silverman, Tiffany's lawyer and spouse. Ian, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. So you're suing the administration over this not recognizing the appointment of Tiffany. Tell us what we read in the Times Union and a little bit more. Why are you suing the administration? Uh, well, I, I guess I'll give you some of the factual background to, so it all seems to make sense. And uh, it really begins last election day, November 7th of 2023. Uh, at the time, Katie Spain McLaren was a candidate for Troy City Council in District 3. And she also was a member of the Zoning Board of Appeals for the city of Troy. She won election that day. Uh, and by law, you can simultaneously serve an elected position, which would be the council, and also an appointed position, which would be the Zoning Board of Appeals for the city of Troy. And in December, I believe it was December 5th uh, of 2023, uh, Mayor Madden's administration reached out uh, to Ms. Spain McLaren, congratulating her on her election and wishing her well, and also informing her that she's going to need to do a resignation letter from the Zoning Board of Appeals. And then on December 10th, Ms. Spain McLaren did in fact, resign uh, by letter to Mayor Madden. Uh, it's important fact to, to note is that she didn't specify a specific effective date for the resignation. Uh, she just simply said, thank you for the opportunity. Because of my recent election to the city council, I have to resign my position on the Zoning Board of Appeals. Uh, the significance of that is by law, if in your resignation letter, you're silent with regards to an effective date, it's deemed to be immediate. So when she sent a letter to Mayor Madden on December 10th, there was a valid resignation and, and then at that point a vacancy, uh, which Mayor Madden had the opportunity to fill. Mayor Madden did in fact fill that vacancy by appointing my wife Tiffany uh, to the Zoning Board of Appeals by letter to fill the unexpired term of Ms. Spain McLaren. Uh, zoning Board members get a specific term. She had a three-year term, which was going to run through the end of 2024. So Tiffany would have had the unexpired uh, term of Ms. Payne McLaren. Uh, then thereafter, by law, she has 30 days to sign the oath book, and she did it six days later on December 28th uh, down at City Hall, uh, the city clerk's office. At that point, by law, she was uh, should have been recognized as a valid member of the Zoning Board of Appeals. Fast forward, we go into the new year, new administration. Mayor Mantello takes office in January 1st, uh, which was a Monday, so the first official day a business was Tuesday the 2nd. Tiffany reached out to the personnel department because she needed to take a training and also to get on the books for the city because there is a small stipend that comes with being on the board. She really wasn't getting much of a response back, uh, and we sort of attributed it to 
new administration, new hires, just kind of a backlog and things. So, so you know, be patient with it. Although there, there was an email from a member of the administration from City Hall that did congratulate Tiffany on her appointment. So they seem to acknowledge that she was, in fact, a member of the Zoning Board of Appeals. So we kind of thought it was a little unusual. And I've since learned that on January 8th, uh, a member of uh, City Hall's administration, Mayor Mantel's administration, then contacted Katie Spain McLaren asking for a copy of the letter that she sent to Mayor Madden. Katie Spain did, in fact, email the letter that we talked about that did not have the effective date. Uh, the very next day on January 9th, once again, the administration reached out to uh, Katie Spain and said, you know, I apologize for this, but you're going to need to add a date to your letter. And so she said, what do you mean, like December 31st, 23? And, she, and they said, yes, absolutely. Put December 31st, 2023. And so Katie Spain, you know, just simply inserted the effective date of December 31st, 2023 in, sent it off. The administration said, great. Uh, then two days later on January 11th, he heard from a member of the personnel department saying that the mayor is not going to acknowledge the appointment because uh, she believes it was not legally valid and they were going to go forth with their own appointment, which they have since done. That maybe explains a bit of the quote that I read in the Times Union that a spokesperson for Montello, Chris, was quoted by saying that on their initial investigation that Tiffany was appointed to a position that was not yet vacated. And I was trying to understand that quote, but I think what you just outlined goes into that. Yeah. Some. And I think their defense, I guess, is the, the best term for it is you know, because this the second letter, and it's important to remember there's a second letter included December 31st, 2023 effective date, um, but that was at the behest of the administration. The first letter that did not contain an effective date was legally enforceable, was legally valid, and it seems the height of absurdity that the administration would be able to uh, use their own erroneous advice as a shield and a sword at the same time, which it seems is what exactly they're doing. You know, it could send a really, I think, a dangerous precedent because they did rely upon the city's advice, uh, whether it was just an error or whether it was intentional deceit in that, I guess that would be determined. The fact of the matter is you can't take a otherwise valid resignation and then after the fact, you know, render it invalid by erroneous advice. Interesting added information. So if you look at the Zoning Board of Appeals website off of the city site, you can see that there are now five members and Steve Miner has been added to replace Katie Spain McLaren. What do you hope to accomplish with the lawsuit at this point? Is there hope that Tiffany would be back on the zoning board? Could you just explain what the lawsuit outlines yeah. and sort of like the time frame for what it does? Sure. Uh, the, the time frame is we have a return date of March 4th. Uh, which is just about two weeks away. Uh, response papers to my initial petition are due seven days before, so just a little bit less than a week away. Uh, and then the hope is that the decision will be rendered shortly thereafter. Uh, there's you know, not a trial, no testimony. It will all be done on the papers. And, and the remedy that we're seeking is that Tiffany is appointed to the Zoning Board of Appeals, essentially an order of mandamus, a, a uh, mandatory order under Article 78. And, and you know, I want to point out the fact that I, I tried to avoid litigation with this. I reached out to City Hall when this became an issue and uh, never heard back from anyone. You know, so we were left with the uh, really no alternative other than to bring this action. I, I didn't want to do it. I think it's a waste of uh, taxpayers' time, you know, certainly our, our time. But, you know, the law is the law and everybody has to abide by the law. And to me, it seems 
that the administration really looked for a way to uh, void this appointment. Our elected officials are sworn to uphold the law, and we expect them to abide by the law. Uh, you know, I understand that you want to make your own appointments, but the appointment of Tiffany by Mayor Madden was legal and valid and appropriate, uh, and, and it should be honored by the next administration. And, and, you know, we see this at all levels of government where elected officials seem to think that they are above the law, and, and they certainly are not. And I think that's what this lawsuit ultimately is about. It's not about the money. Uh, we've probably already spent more money in filing fees and my time than what Tiffany would get from the stipend. But it's about the principle. It's about the law. And, you know, I, I'm a lawyer. I, I respect the law. I follow the law. And I don't think it's too much to ask that our elected officials do as well. Yeah, I think um, the zoning board members only get, what is it, less than $2,000? per $2,000. Oh, yeah. So I'm curious about this point about changing and adding information to the document. Is that a crime in itself or is like, how well, do I'll leave you that present to others that? To determine. It doesn't present well, I'll say that. At best we have, you know, the city providing erroneous advice and really causing a lot of chaos and confusion. You know, if it's intentional, that's a whole different scenario, which, you know, does bring in other elements and other concerns. Um, but for this purpose, I, I think it's irrelevant whether it was simply erroneous or intentional, but the bottom line is the fact this was a legal appointment. Mayor Mantello could not therefore alter it by, you know, demanding a date be be added in, in, in a sense, then saying now that's a invalid resignation and there was no vacancy on December 22nd because, uh, you know, Miss Spain McLaren simply followed the advice uh, of City Hall. Uh, you know, like I said in my papers, that would just be absurd uh, if, if, if government could operate that way. And I, I I hope the judge sees that as well. But the date is the, is the fourth, and we're hoping to have a decision on or about that date or shortly thereafter. I don't think the facts are in dispute. There's not a lot of case law on this because I think it's such a unique situation where it doesn't come up. But, you know, the public officer's law is what applies here. Uh, you know, and there's a couple of significant factors within public officer's laws. One, if, if it's silent with regards to a re resignation date, it's deemed to be immediate. Uh, another thing is you cannot alter the letter uh, thereafter, the fact, you know, so the second letter to me is moot and, and you know, to, to allow the city to rely upon that and try to strike this appointment would just be absurd. Uh, the, the, one of the concerns I think is from a larger city perspective is there is, as you mentioned, a, a new individual who's been appointed for this seat. If we prevail in, in this Article 78 and Tiffany is then reseated, uh, what does that do to any decisions that have been made in the meantime? by this individual who would, would be deemed to not have been properly on the board. And, and this is something that we all hope to avoid, but I, I never received a response back and, and it really wasn't any alternatives for us. Uh, we filed and, you know, I believe we're right in the law, we're right in the facts, and hopefully uh, soon Tiffany will take her rightful place on the zoning board. Great. Ian Silverman, thank you so much for joining us to dive into this a little bit deeper today on the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Thank you very much. That was Elizabeth E.P. Press, who also recently interviewed Mayor uh, Mantello about the actions the mayor has taken since getting into office a few weeks ago. If you would like to hear that interview and more local news, head on over to our website at mediasanctuary.org. Next, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry spoke with Sean Collins, Troy Area Labor Council President and Labor Organizer for Service Employees International Union, SEIU, about the highs and lows of the labor movement in 2023 and what's ahead in 2024. This is part two of that discussion. 
for a resident myself, like, you know, I, I, I know that there are a high number of vacancies across the entire city workforce. Their pay is low. The benefits have been chipped away at over the years. And, you know, workers have been you know voting with their feet, basically. It's just like this. I can't make a living. I can't support my family working for the city of Troy. And so they're going other places. And I think if that if that uh, if that's going to stop, if we're going to hold on to, you know, on to our workers and to rebuild the city workforce, the city's going to have to uh, come to the table and really put put money on the table for these folks to keep them keep them here and to bring new folks in. So that's I mean that's something I'm paying attention to. Uh, you know, there's other organizing to you know uh, you know happening here in the capital district. You know, the Starbucks workers are obviously still in the midst of negotiations and pushing for a national contract. And so the stores, the six or seven stores that organized here in the capital district, are a part of that. And hopefully, you know, there is some movement towards a, a contract there. Um, there was a story uh, in the news a couple of weeks ago that Starbucks, you know, had reached out to the union trying to restart those negotiations. Uh, not sure if that was a PR move or that was genuine, but uh, that remains to be seen. Um, so that'll have a local impact. And, um, you know, just in terms of my, my, my own, you know, my work that I've been doing as like, you know, Skidmore faculty, mm-hmm. um, non-tenure track faculty are in the midst of contract negotiations. Um, and are towards the first contract and are hopefully going to reach one um, before the end of this year, uh, this academic year, and if that, which would be, you know, June. And if they're unsuccessful then, you know, by that point, hopefully before the end of the year. I mean, we've been in bargaining since uh, February of last year. Um, so we're going on a, a, over a year of negotiations. Um, so, you know, we're hoping to, to reach an agreement soon, but uh, and we're making, we're making good progress towards it, but it remains to be seen. Um, if the college will agree to, you know, changes that would improve pay and improve, improve job security for those folks. So that's, you know, a little bit of local, a little bit of national. Right, right. And John, uh, I want to ask some more questions just about the activities of the uh, Troy Every Labor Council. But, sure. but, but first I want to uh, just ask you about that AFL-CIO statement on the situation in Israel and, and Gaza. And I do know that since the AFL, before the AFL issued this statement, you know, uh, there was union workers trying to push union or push the labor movement to make some type of statement about ceasefire. And some of them took a lot of slack for trying to do that. The AFL-CIO finally issued something on February the 8th, 2024, in which it was a short state press release at the issue. And it says, it says that the AFL-CIO condemns the attack by Hamas on October 7th and called for a negotiated ceasefire in Gaza, including the immediate release of all hostages and provisionals, provisions of desperate needed shelter, food, medicine, and other humanitarian assistance to the Gazan, and reaffirm our support of a two-state solution for long-term peace and security. And that was that short statement they, they issued. So what are your thoughts about that? I, I think that um, they are engaging in a, a war genocide and, and ethnic cleansing to uh, push uh, the Palestinians to the 2.3, 2.4 million Palestinians that reside in the Gaza Strip out uh, are using the events on October 7th to, uh, to justify 
this genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, as of you know, as of you know, the, today or the past couple of days, I mean, the, the number of confirmed deaths is north of twenty-eight thousand. A majority of those are children. Majority of those, a majority are women and children, right? Um, and so, I think workers, regardless what they saw, you know, what happened on October seventh, can put two and two together and understand that, like, this is this isn't right. What's happening is horrifying. It is asymmetrical, and the only way, the only the only thing that has successfully released a number of hostages from Hamas is, you know, kept it, you know, captivity with Hamas has been peace, has been an end, a cessation of, of conflict and of war, um, and to release those hostages into into you know to hopefully you know or not hopefully but to introduce you know humanitarian aid into Gaza, um, and I think so. Workers saw these images and. You know, first we, you know, there was, you know, independent like local unions put out statements of their own. You know, there's some central labor councils, despite uh, it sort of being prohibited, put out statements um, calling on calling on the uh, President Biden and Congress to demand a ceasefire, an immediate ceasefire. And then, you know, a bunch of, you know, national internationals, you know, put out their own statements. You know, obviously, first and foremost was was the UAW um, mm-hmm. called for a ceasefire. Um, and, and I and I think. You know, it's it's significant that 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 it was it started with the UAW because the UAW you know represents a lot of workers who work in the defense industry, um, and so like calling for a ceasefire, um, in a, in a sense, uh, you know, hurts the bottom line. It's it's this, you know it's it's producing you know weapons of war. You know, unfortunately, that is how you know they make their living, <laughs> um, and uh, in, in a sense, and, and so I think. That uh, that is significant, and then other unions came out. The, the American Federation of Teachers, the um, you know my my international union, uh, Service Employees International Union, put out a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, various you know international unions have put out a statement, and I think the AFL finally uh, responded to that crescendo and and, and made uh, and made that and issued that statement, and it's the right statement, and it's and it's important um, that labor uh, for a ceasefire. You know, I, I never would have thought that I would see in my my lifetime, um, you know, this this you know this sort of uh, you know about face, you know, in terms of the general American, you know, electorate and and, and voters and people, you know, in favor of a, of a ceasefire, viscerally opposed to what um, Israel was doing in Gaza. I, I don't think you could look at these images and be like, this is this is fine. This is. This is uh, symmetrical. This is justified. I, I, I think it, it's that's impossible. I think it's and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, more and more, uh, you know, elected officials and other you know, people in positions of political authority, um, you know, call for the same. Because I think, uh, um, you know, something's got to give, <laughs> obviously. Right. OK. And so there's one other uh, issue I want to ask you about, too. And uh, I know the uh, Troy Labor Council has been involved in the Burdett birth center uh, issue in Troy and uh, just want to know what is the latest on keeping the birth center open um, so, it's, and so I, I we, we have been involved with the coalition since mm-hmm. the very beginning right um, my, my, my my wife is uh, a very uh, is a is it very involved in a, a core organizer with the coalition um, the fight continues um, uh, you know the the St. Peter's Health Partners, which uh, uh, operates Samaritan Hospital and the Bird at Birth Center, is is holding a, a town hall later this month. Um, you know, for the community to come and and, and to you know a, you know answer questions that they might have. 
Um, and, you know, they're still committed to closing it. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, again, you know, the locally, like the, the, the plan is, is opposed by all corners. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think one of the things that some folks, you know, some groups in the organization and the coalition have tried to make a point to say is it's not, it's not just about Burdett Birth Center, though. It, it is, you know, it is the most you know, pressing concern because it is the only maternity ward here in Rensselaer County. But it's part of a, you know, a broader project of St. Peter's Health Partners and, and you know, the healthcare industry as a whole. Uh, you know, it's, they're really in the grand scheme of things. They're trying to close this hospital, I think. You know, they're trying to close Samaritan. They they closed a dental health clinic. They closed a, a mental health clinic. They, they've, you know, none of these are profitable. Trinity Health, this uh, you know Catholic health network um, based out of Michigan. So the the campaign to, to save Burdett is not just to save Burdett because that's important, but I think it's also to save only hospital in Rensselaer County um, and to make sure that there is accessible care, whether it be maternal health care um, uh, or you know health care generally for Rensselaer County residents. Um, and so we'll, we'll be we'll be uh, par- participating or we'll be attending that uh, that. Uh, at town hall later this month. Oh, is and, it, uh, is a know, town hall meeting gonna... later this month on that? Yeah, I, I forget the exact date, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, there is a town hall later this month. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's the 27th or 28th. Okay. Uh, and um, yeah, so we'll be there and we'll be calling on St. Peter's to uh, not close this house, uh, this, this birth center mm-hmm. and to keep Burnett open. You know, it's, the campaign's not over yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like, we really do need a big showing at this town hall later this month. All right, son. Uh, you know, I want to thank you uh, for doing this interview. And there's a lot of other questions that I really want to ask you, but because of time, we can't do it. But, you know, we'll talk again in the future about some of these uh, issues and things that are happening. Before I let you go, is there any other points that you want to bring up that the community should know about what's going on with the labor movement or the Troy Area Labor Council? Uh, but I don't think we covered already. Oh, right. Yeah, that mm-hmm. we haven't covered already. <laughs> <laughs> Not that, I, not that I could think of, but, uh, you know, yeah, we should do this again soon. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you again. And that's uh, Sean Collins, who's president of Detroit Area Labor Council. Thanks again, Sean. Not a problem. You have a good day. Good day. This was part two of Roaming Labor correspondent Willie Terry's interview with Sean Collins. Part one aired last week, but can be streamed anytime on our website at mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The Albany Institute of History and Art is hosting an event by the NAACP Albany Branch on February 25th from 1 to 5 p.m., Sina Basila Hickey uh, spoke with the NAACP Albany uh, to learn more. In recognition of the 115th NAACP National Founders Day, Albany NAACP is hosting the event Albany History and African American Advocacy, a roundtable talk with local activists, 
leaders, and residents. And I'm now joined by representatives of Albany NAACP. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Deborah Brown and Beverly Ivy, could you please introduce yourselves? Yes. My name is Deborah Brown, and I am the president of the Albany NAACP. Hi, and I'm joined with um, Deborah. My name is Beverly Ivy, and I am the chair of the civic engagement for the Albany NACP uh, branch. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. This is a, such a really incredible event. And like I just mentioned, having spent many a um, lot of time in Albany, I think a lot of our history is still very unknown for the general public. And maybe we will start with just going through the incredible roster of talent that you're bringing to this event that is taking place at the Albany Institute of Art and History on Sunday, February 25th from 1 to 5 p.m. So... We have Lacey Wilson, Harriet Lovelady, Carlise Lovelady, Honorable Carolyn McLaughlin, Ann Pope, and Nell Stokes. That's an incredible roster. Who who do we even start with there? Well, we can start with uh, Lacey Wilson, who will serve as our moderator for the event. And uh, Lacey is a public historian, and she had begun about two years ago, a year and a half maybe, on the project with the Albany Institute on African-American advocacy in Albany. And so as part of her project, she was interviewing a number of individuals, a range of individuals in the city of Albany, um, pulling together different pieces of the history in Albany. And so she will be the moderator. Also, um, we will be, we plan to show pieces of her project, the oral interviews that she has had with a number of these individuals um, as part of the program on Sunday. On the roster, I mean, it's a, a wealth of, of people who are either, they are residents of Albany, some of them were raised, born and raised, others moved up to the area like Nell Stokes. Um, she came to the area, but she was uh, quite an activist from her, in her hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, doing the sit-ins in Montgomery and the bus boycott. She remembers it vividly. She was 16 at the time. So they bring a wealth of, uh, of advocacy and, and mm -hmm. activism to the city of Albany and in their own quiet way, but also uh, in the legislator as Carolyn McLaughlin does as, as a legislator for the South Bend area. Yeah. And I think as you know, you have a range. The the one of the good things with the panelists because you get a range of perspectives. You're going to get um, family members who grew up here and then subsequently raised their families here, and their perspective, their engagement, their involvement in the Albany community. And as um, uh, Beverly indicated, you have the Honorable Carolyn McLaughlin, who also was raised here in Albany and bring that perspective, but also bring that perspective from having been part of the political arena within um, Albany. Miss Pope, Ann Pope is, who came here as part of a number of, of uh, individuals who came here from Shibuta, Mississippi. So they bring another perspective of that migrant type of movement here into um, the Albany area and their experiences in coming into Albany and their experience in being involved in the Albany scene and Ms. Pope for her longtime activism in the with the NAACP and what that looked like 
um, over the years of, of her involvement. And Ms. Stokes um, also, as Beverly has indicated, came here from the South and her experience and her involvement as a longtime advocate, but also she has a project that's on display at the, um, the uh, Institute that um, hopefully the participants will have time to go down and see her work in the community, uh, that how um, her involvement and the work she has done with the different organizations within the Albany area. And Harriet Lovelady and Carlise Lovelady. Right. They're coming again, grew up, born and raised here in Albany, grew up here in Albany, married here in Albany, and subsequently raised family here in Albany. Mm -hmm. So that you bring generations of perspectives uh, in being in this community and what that looked like from their um, perspective. Carlise is the, one of the five daughters of Harriet and Carl Lovelady. And so their grandfather was the oilman and he sold oil, one of the few black businesses at that time. And uh, he was well, very well known, got to uh, hear more about his history. So Miss Harriet would share that uh, what her family did as a business uh, owner, uh, being a daughter of a business owner and growing up in the South End with her family. The businesses, the different family, the different ethnic groups that were there, Polish, uh, German, Jewish, are all living in that South End area back in, I guess, the 40s or early 50s. Thinking about the activism and history of, of Albany, is there something particularly unique about this area that maybe defines that history and legacy in Albany? Well, I think it, in a lot of ways, it's like other small towns. But I think the thing that stands out with Albany, one being the capital of New York, which in a, 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 the state in and of itself comes with a lot of history uh, and perspective of what people think about New York and having Albany being the capital. And also for here, you have individuals who live here, who have come here as part of a movement from the South here. And then you have individuals who have moved here to work for New York state government, you know, and like other communities, then you have those who came to Albany to attend school um, for that college arena. So you have a number of different perspectives, what brings with it its own um, experiences and thinking. So you have the um, individuals who are born and raised here and how they saw and their experience in Albany. You have individuals who have come from other places. I and Beverly, we both came here for a fellowship program with the New York State Education Department. At the time we moved here, we were already professionals in our career in, um, in uh, New York City, but we came to address the program that, we, that brought us here was a program to, to address the lack of diversity within state government in the management arena within state government. So you look at that again, New York, New York state government, <laughs> the capital of New York and the varied experiences of the people that lived here. What can visitors expect from the event, Albany History and African-American Advocacy taking place on Sunday? 
When talk about well, the I think they can expect to learn so much about what's happened in Albany, uh, uh, um, the Founders Day of NACP. We uh, founded in uh, 1935. So they will hear that rich history. They will just be engulfed in learning and hopefully will go away wanting to learn more. That there's so much that has happened that they didn't know that we want to learn more. We want to be a part of the NACP because we will do our membership drive. We want them to be a part of this movement of the civil rights uh, struggle and and get a little something good to eat also at the end. So. And to be part of making it better. How do we move mm -hmm. forward in a collective way to improve the plight of all of us, that everyone have a quality of life? And where can listeners find more information about this event and about Albany NAACP? One of two ways for the event, you can call us at 518-275-0673. You can reach us by email, Albany, N-A-A-C-P, the number one, at gmail.com. So those are the two easiest ways, by our phone or by our Gmail account. And you can hear more about the event happening at the Albany Institute of History and Art, 125 Washington Avenue from 1 to 5. Sunday. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with both of you, uh, Deborah Brown and Beverly Ivy. Would you like to leave our listeners with anything? We who believe in freedom cannot rest. The work continues. And so we need everyone. We see the changes that are happening around the world. So our work, unfortunately, is not done, but it takes all of us to make the type of change we want to see going forward. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having, taking the time for us to share this. We appreciate it so much, and we hope to do more. And that was Sina Bazilla Hickey speaking with Deborah Brown and Beverly Ivy from the Albany NAACP. That event is happening at the Albany Institute of History and Art on February 25th from 1 to 5 p.m. The roundtable will be happening until 3 p.m., and then the reception will last until 5. Albany area sewist. Lynn DeMaria explains how learning the techniques of sewing helped individuals support environmental sustainability by reducing landfill, preserving cherished items, and more. She spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Bria Barthel about this and more. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Frequent listeners know that this program is dedicated to environmental sustainability, social justice, environmental justice, creative expression. And I have a guest here today who is involved with many projects that contribute to most of those focuses. Lynn DeMaria is a local sewist, S-E-W-I-S-T. That's the newest version because sewer, S-E-W-E-R, look too familiar with other connotations. So Lynn is very active in teaching people the value and the techniques of sewing with both an economic bent and an environmental bent and a creative expression bent. We have it all. So Lynn, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Perhaps you can give us a little background on why you want to share your love of sewing with people. Well, you know, I I don't know 
I don't always understand where my love of sewing came from. I think I have been sewing since I was actually five years old. So that's many years ago. And I'm very accomplished in my work. And I feel that today that craft, that creativity is lacking and people don't know how that can enrich their lives. So I would love to pass my knowledge on to other people. And for some people, when we say sewing, they think of giant intricate quilts or suits and difficult things. And yet there are many things that people can do once they learn the basics of sewing that are less involved, but satisfying. Can you give us some examples of how what people might do to start off? In sewing? Well, one of the um, projects that would be very easy for, say, a, a beginning sewer or sewist to attempt, and I like to do this with a lot of my fabric scraps, is to create reusable bags that we can take even to the supermarket, um, you know, so that we cut down on the, you know, ability for us to use plastic. So those are simple projects that people can do um, and kind of sets them apart from other people because the bag might be attractive and people might comment. And yes. I've seen bags like that made out of the legs of old pants. Do you have oh, other ways? Right, exactly. You can really your your ability to create is is limitless you can you know use a lot of different things to create anything these days um with a focus on you know reusability uh, you know people make things out of old quilts that are damaged. So there's a lot of ability to learn how to recycle and reduce things being put into landfills. There are so many directions I want to take with this, but while we're talking about uh, reducing things going to landfills, I know you're going to be doing something on Earth Day or a repair cafe on a Earth repair Day? cafe. I started doing these last year. I was intrigued by the concept of it. I saw the the value in you know having these repair cafes. So it's usually a period of three to four hours where people come in. All the fixers are volunteers. We do sometimes take donations, particularly if we bring our own supplies uh, to be incorporated into things. But I've seen, you know, lamps are a really popular thing for people to fix at repair cafes, vacuum cleaners, sewing machines, which are a little bit harder to fix at repair cafes. But, uh, you know, mending your jeans or your kids pajama bottoms i've had lots of different things you know the ability to keep something in use for just a little bit longer and that keeps things out of the landfill and that has been my major goal in my life for probably the past 50 years yes and one of the things you mentioned that i hadn't thought about was that repairing things also allows people to keep their cherished items and keep using their cherished items. Absolutely. You know, there are things 
that may not hold a lot of monetary value, but they hold sentimental value. And, you know, frankly, there are things that people cannot afford to always replace in this world either. So it's a great thing uh, for the community. And part of the whole Repair Cafe movement is teaching people how to fix their own items. I have a friend who was astonished when she heard that I sew things. She said, I didn't know I even knew somebody who owned a sewing machine. And it was just absolutely foreign to her. I think she was thinking of Little House on the Prairie or something when I said that I had a sewing machine. So it 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 but it's very satisfying to craft something on my own. And some simple sewing projects you can do without owning a sewing machine. There are places like uh, Historic Albany Foundation's Tool Lending Library where you can borrow, uh, members can borrow a sewing machine. Some libraries have sewing machines in their library of things. It's very interesting to see how they're more available now. And when we think of sewing, we think of all the costs involved, not just the machine, which you, you know, I just said you can borrow, but supplies and fabric and Velcro or buttons. You have a great place where you get all of that stuff. I do. Um, I volunteer at a not-for-profit in Albany called Upstitch. And uh, Upstitch takes in crafting supplies, yarn, notions, fabric, ribbon, pretty much everything. It's uh, a small collection of things. It's one of those places where you, it's catch as catch can, but boy, when you find a good buy, you jump on it at Upstitch. And not just the the fabric, but also the thread, thread for like a quarter uh, spool. It's just an amazing, amazing nonprofit on New Scotland Avenue in Albany. And then you you have an upcoming mending day on the Happy Collective on Lark Street. The Mending Day is like Repair Cafe, but it's just for sewing. It's kind of a service to the community. I will be there for three hours. If there are things where I actually have to put money into the project, I, I will be charging a small fee for say zippers or, or or things like that that I might have to use. One thing I would suggest to listeners if you do plan to come to the Mending Cafe is wash the clothing ahead of time if possible. I offered to help somebody with repairs on something and she gave it to me and it was sweaty and dirty and it's like I don't want to touch it. So uh you you'll you'll be there you'll at the Happy Collective at 197 Lark Street on March 2nd from 2 to 5. Uh, do people have to register in advance or anything? No, they don't. Okay. And then you said that you hope to offer sewing classes in the future. Yes. We currently, with Upstitch, sent out a survey asking people what types of classes they would like. So we're trying to cater to uh, what is needed or necessary in the community. I do get asked every single time I work at Upstitch 
for sewing lessons. <laughs> so, and I also do private lessons if if anybody would be interested. And that's I would do those at the Happy Collective also. So, okay. And uh, some contact information. How can people find out more about you and more about where you'll be doing these repair cafes and things? Well usually I advertise things that I do on Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, I know that both the Happy Collective and Upstitch are both very active on both of those. I also, I mean, I do have a business. So if people wanted to get a hold of me, my email is LAD, my initials, 357 at gmail.com. So that is Lynn DeMaria. She's yes. a sewist. She is a community supporter to share her love of sewing, um, to, to promote sustainability, to promote individual crafting and creative expression. Lynn, thank you so much for talking with the listeners of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mending Day will be on March 2nd uh, from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Happy Collective at 197 Lark Street in Albany. Lindy Maria will also participate in a repair cafe on Earth Day in April at the nonprofit organization Upstitch on New Scotland Ave in Albany. And finally, we turn to our archives with Alicia Washington's interview with Cheryl Marion, co-founder of Flutters of Hope, Inc. Hello, my name is Alicia Washington. During the month of March, I came across a nonprofit organization tabling at the Adirondack Sports Expo in Saratoga Springs. I approached to inquire and heard about a local foundation supporting and advocating for individuals experiencing eating disorders. I asked for an interview with the co-founder, Cheryl Marin, and this is what I learned. We started Flutters of Hope to help individuals like my daughter who was suffering from an eating disorder. And going through this journey, we realized there wasn't a lot of resources um, and there wasn't enough support or counselors here. So knowing there was a need in this area and Annalise requesting at some point when she was ill, can we start? A foundation. Um, so it all made sense for us to just start to help those who are suffering with an eating disorder families, giving them support. I've read about how you uh, and Annalise enjoy putting together what I believe are called butterfly wish baskets. Correct. And you also help with the uh, financial aspect yep. for families mm -hmm. in grants. But you've gone far beyond that with advocacy work yeah. and also at the state level. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So we were asked by National Eating Disorder Association. There was a mental health and purity law that they were trying to get passed because it's not just anorexia. All eating disorders need to be recognized and be able to get appropriate treatment. So in the law, we were asking them to amend it. Not necessarily. We're not asking for money. We're asking you to amend it and educating them, eating disorder isn't just anorexia, it's bulimia, it's ARFID, it's overeating, it's restrictive, it's orthorexia, it's exercise-orexia, I think that's what they call it now. So we were asking, because the insurance do have to pay, or are supposed to pay for treatment, it was only classified as anorexia. So we were asking them to amend the law and just change the verbiage 
basically. All eating disorders should be recognized. So we, we sat in front of five to six senators, and at first they were like, wait, what? I don't understand. And then once you started connecting with them, sharing your story, one mother, I, I, I don't, she wasn't a senator. I think she was a spokesman for the senator. She, she's like, when I mentioned the ARFID on the autism population, she's like, oh my God, that was my son. I never knew that. So we were educating him. So, and the law did get passed. So yeah, it's education is really critical and continuing education. So the nice thing about the baskets, and we've delivered baskets as far as Buffalo and grants, we've given people in Buffalo grants. Um, but I will say it allowed us, not only did we increase our grants from four, 500 to 1,000, but it also allowed me to purchase the two books that I utilized with Annalise to educate the parents. So when I dropped those baskets off yesterday, I said to the nurse and the woman who's now running it, I said, please do not give these books to the individual who's suffering. These are strictly for the parents because we don't want them to have leverage. So that, because they'll play it against you. And I said, please give these, these are for them. I gave them a personal note with my information in there that they can call um, just so they have those tools and they know what to anticipate. So they'll be prepared. Because we just want to empower families. We really do. We just want to empower them. Let them know they're not alone. Give them the support. They do call me. I have a lot of families that do call for support. I'll sit and talk to them. I get it. I know. I don't think anyone chooses to have anorexia. Just like nobody chooses to be an alcoholic or an addict. Um, I think it's a number of things. I think it has a lot to do with anxieties, depression, a lot of OCD, personality. It's a perfect storm, if I may say. It's everything boiling and then it just hits. Um, it may start off with somebody making a comment to somebody they might need to lose weight or they're seeing social influences that might trigger the eating disorder. But you could have multiple diagnoses. You could have bulimia and anorexia where you binge and then restrict, which is very common. Um, there's a lot of people have ARFID, which is very common among the autism population, which is avoidant food restriction because of sensory and taste. Sometimes they don't like their foods touch or they don't like the texture. So that could cause um, an eating disorder. But we ended up going to a new practitioner and she was so open. She knows there's a diagnosis. In fact, Annalise is on antibiotics right now and it's always been triggered with Either she had braces when she was little, which she was showing signs then, which I had no idea. Um, anxiety, OCD, all these symptoms, headaches. She had um, nosebleeds. She had intrusive thoughts. And we just thought it was part of the anxieties. Maybe it was ADHD, which is another part of PANDAS, which we didn't know. Everything just, it was like a perfect storm. And then she had braces off and then got her braces on again. And that's when everything triggered even more behaviors like uh, eight-hour tantrums so we were lost we are very lucky we have right now without a doubt it makes all the difference yeah, it, it has so when we talk about medical providers I just want to touch on a little further in your podcast you were talking about um, Annalise going through a refeeding program at the hospital right but what I really want to ask you about is focusing on the aftercare and the journey ahead yeah, that was how much support <laughs> did you because you're in a program it offers you advice and you have yeah. medication but 
then you're leaving this sort of like a, a, an environment that cradles you and you have to carry on on right. your own or find other support. How were you able to do that? Um, it was very challenging. We had a lot of providers. We had an endocrinologist, we had a counselor, we had a nutritionist, we had her school counselor, and then you had the primary. So there's a lot of doctors involved none of which communicated. So there is no consistency, but there was no continuity of her care. Meanwhile, we had no idea what to anticipate with the behaviors, the sneakiness, the lying. Um, I think that, I think the behaviors were the most challenging because we weren't, you always had to be on top of it. We were not prepared. I don't think you are ever prepared. Um, it wasn't until we did the Stanford University study with the Mosley. That's when things started to shift. We started understanding the illness. A woman by the name of, um, she, she was uh, doing the study at Stanford, Dr. Allison Darcy, I think her name was. And we asked to get in the study and she took us. It was a risk because <laughs> Annalisa's weight was so low. Um, and our doctor was great at the time. She approved it. And she basically coached us like, you know how we have online Skype now or what well, was it like blue jean at the time? It was all through video. So all she did was coach us to coach Annalise and help us understand the disease. Within three months, she was weight restored. Not to say she was recovered because she does this. We did a lot of slipping and sliding during. It's going to be ongoing, I think. So basically, we just want to give people hope. We know fluttering, they're going to be fluttering, they're going to be floundering around, fluttering away. It's not a straight line. Really just the whole purpose of this is just advocacy too. Just letting people know, you know, you're not alone. We're here to support you. Again, that was Cheryl Marin speaking about her experience as a mother supporting a daughter as she recovers from an eating disorder illness and the advocacy work that emerged from the desire to help others suffering from the same or similar illness. Just to be clear, the two bills from 2019 are A-1619, championed by Assemblywoman Nylee Rosick, passed in the Assembly. S-3101, championed by Senator Alessandra Biaggi, passed in the Senate. That was Alicia Washington's interview from our archives with Flutters of Hope, Inc. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And today, engineering was Vinny Damapolito. We thank all of the volunteers who made today's episode possible. In addition to Vinny, we want to thank Bria Barthel, Mark Dunley, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Willie Terry, and Alicia Washington. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. <laughs>